First of all, let me get this out of the way. Guns up. <laughs> to Texas Tech men and women, congratulations. Yeah, they're doing all right. They're doing all right, Frank. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. We even, we even rooted for them in our house. It hurt physically, but it, we did it. We did it. So today we're going to finish a series on uh, the story of the parable of, excuse me, the prodigal son. Uh, one of the things we've learned in all kinds of fields is the power of, of, of story. It holds families together. It holds organizations together. It holds communities and nations together. Stories are much more important than most of us realize and, and how powerful they are in defining us and, and defining our aspirations because, because we live a story and therefore we relate to stories so much more significantly. And there are very few stories that have been told in human history that have related to people quite like the story of the prodigal son. It is a part of Western uh, thought. It is, you can say prodigal in almost any circles and, and we understand what that means even if we don't know what the word means. Because it, it is a word and a story that, that touches us so deeply. Because it, it's, it's a story of forgiveness and grace and mercy. And I believe it, it, it's so powerful because we long for that so deeply. Because all of us inherently know that, that we can have no relationships apart from mercy, forgiveness, and grace. No relationships in our life exist apart from forgiveness. If they're healthy and if they're loving, if they're kind, there is always an overlay of forgiveness and mercy and grace because we all mess up. And marriages only succeed when there's forgiveness and mercy and grace. Relationships with children are always built on mutual forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Churches where there is an absence of forgiveness, don't last, and they certainly don't function well. And, and even a society has to learn how to give people the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we are in such a contentious time is we have, have created this expectation of goodness of humanity, and now we're grossly disappointed with each other, and we have no sense of mercy and grace, and therefore, rather than working with each other, we just beat each other up and say awful things. It is foundational to any relationships in any context. And the prodigal son is a story that, that we can all visualize so acutely that it's powerful for all of our lives. So I've given you a chart on the notes that kind of over, gives an overview of, of how we've progressed first through here. And in each case, I've, I've tried to show how that is lived out in the story of the nation of Israel because I have another purpose here, and that is to show that the story of God's grace through his gospel is a story that was first told in the life of the nation of Israel and that Israel pointed to the gospel and you can still see the gospel in that story. So Jesus, when he tells the story, begins by declaring that God is a father. And, and Jesus didn't make that up. You can see it all the way back in Deuteronomy 32 in Moses' farewell address, in effect, to the people of Israel. And he, he calls Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Father, and then he defines what the Father does. He gave us life. He sustains us. He protects us. He disciplines us. And that's what fathers do. 
think it was this morning, maybe it was yesterday morning, before 6 a.m., things all blur together in my head, but there was an article about the dysfunction among boys that they point directly to the cause being absent fathers, the, the impact of, of uninvolved fathers. And this was a writer who was saying, we can see this society-wide and in the Western world that, that when fathers are absent, especially boys are acutely hurt. And so Jesus chooses the metaphor of father to describe our relationship to God because that's what God does for us. And, and he, point, he uses an idea that goes all the way back strongly to Moses' song. And then he immediately went forward to the issue that we chose Joshua 24, where God has used Joshua to bless the nation of Israel, to bring them the gifts that he had promised. And he gives a speech in Joshua 24 to where he says to the nation, look at all God has done for you. And, and it reflects back to the relationship of the prodigal son with the father because he also had been remarkably blessed. His, his father was a man of wealth and substance, and he cared for his son and had given him more than he could consider. And Joshua lays before the nation of Israel the choice that you have to make in light of God's blessing, and that is you've been blessed, but who are you going to serve? And Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the, the prodigal is someone who had been remarkably blessed, but rather than choose to serve his father, he chose to go on his own, and, and he bore horrible consequences, just as Israel did. Just as Israel did. And then, then we looked at the book of Judges to illustrate the life of the prodigal himself. In Judges chapters 10 through 12, we, a story of the nation of Israel, because they were at a time with no real leadership, only judges who came and went, the, the nation of Israel repeatedly chose to disobey God. And every time they did, they brought disaster upon themselves. And then they would repent, and God would bless, and then they would experience prosperity, and then there would be another disaster. And that was the prodigal. He'd been given so much, but he chose to go his own way. And he bore the consequences of that disobedience because men and women, do you know that all of God's commands are for your good? Do you realize that God didn't sit in heaven and eternity past and say, let me give them rules that will ruin their lives? I know that's what your children think you did to you, them as well, but, but that's not God's intent. If, if we love our children enough to only give them rules for their good, how much more so is that true of God the Father? And, and so the prodigal assumes that somehow his father's desires for him aren't good. He rebels against them. He experiences the heartache that that brings, and then he returns to the idea of his father. Then last week we looked at the elder son. We illustrated that with the life of Saul because Saul said when he offered sacrifices before Samuel returned, if you'll remember in the passage, Saul said, but I've done the right thing. I did the right thing. Look at me. I did the right thing. And, and God said, no, I'm going to send someone who is after my heart. Because like the older son who bragged that he did the right thing, the older son was very convinced he had done the right things, right? But the heart wasn't right. And so Saul would be replaced by David, who was a man after his heart. We're going to finish up 
by looking at David and what David represents with the story of the prodigal. But first, let's go back to the story of the prodigal, review it real quickly in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we see the road back. The road back. Jesus said there was a man, verse 11, who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of my estate. The word we translate estate is literally life because the estate is what the father had created with his life. The, the son was choosing the stuff instead of his father. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. One ancient Jewish writer said, when Israelites are reduced to carob pods, then they repent. Uh, most of us, it, it is through the discipline of God, which is invariably through the consequences of our actions, that we are forced to turn back to God. We rarely do it out of uh, the goodness of our heart. We typically do it because we create pain because disobedience invariably brings heartache. In verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me the, like one of your hired men. So he went up, got up and went to his father. I want you to notice the beginning of the road back is he remembered that his father was good. He remembered that his father was good. All the way back to the garden, what, is, what does Satan say to Eve? Did God really want the best for you when he said you couldn't have that? Wasn't he really hiding some, a goodie from you when he said you wouldn't get that? Sin always questions the goodness of God. In fact, anytime we choose to disobey God, what we have effectively said is, Lord, I know better what's right for me than you. So either you're not smart enough to know what's best for me, or you don't love me enough to give me what's best. So I'm taking matters into my own hands, and I'm going to disobey you and look at how good it'll be. Right? That's effectively what any disobedience of God's plan is. It's a, it's a personal choice based on the assumption that either God's not good or he doesn't know best. So the, the prodigal has this beginning of the road back when he realizes, you know what, God, God is good. My father is good. Even his hired hands do better than I'm doing. He treats everybody well. He, he wasn't holding back on me because he didn't love me. He, he has my best in mind. It's always fundamentally based on our view of God. That's why A.W. Tozier so famously said, the most important thing you think is what you think of when you think of God. How, how you picture God drives every decision you make in life, ultimately. Continuing on in verse 20, he said, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father's actions confirm 
his goodness. Now, ancient Near Eastern scholars will tell you, not scholars who are ancient, but scholars who study ancient Near East, some of them may be both. Um, I just want to be clear. Um, they will tell you a, a first century father would have never done this. It would have been viewed as incredibly undignified that a father would wait for this son to come to him. So that, that the story that Jesus is writing is breaking through social ideas of what the lavish love of the father looks like. He is so loving and kind that he doesn't care what it makes him look like. All he wants his son to know is how deeply he loves them. So that he, he falls before him, he hugs him, he kisses him, and he proclaims his love all over again. Verse 23, 21. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice that he has come to the end of himself. He's come to the recognition of his need for his father. He's acknowledged the extent to which he falls short. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his frame. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. The fatted calf is normally associated with the feast days surrounding the most holy days. Day of Atonement and others. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine, look at this, was dead. That's one of the reasons we know this story is about the gospel. Because the way he describes the son's alienation is in terms of death and resurrection. The son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never once gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again and he was lost and he was found. And the father tries to correct the older son who represents the Pharisees, the original audience of this story, because they really believed they didn't need grace. They were good enough. And they knew they were good enough because they could always find someone else who was worse. That, that, that's, that's how self-righteousness functions. It always functions in comparison to other people. And, and we always have plenty of people that we can point to. By the way, that's, that's why there are isms in, our, in societies, classism and lookism and racism and all the isms are, are rooted in making myself feel better about myself by pointing to others who are less than me. Because that, that's how we build our desperately needed self-esteem in, in pointing to our righteousness compared to others. Because if, if we look at our righteousness in comparison to God, 
or even in comparison to the standard to which we hold others. If we judge ourselves based on the way we judge others, we all know we fall way short of our expectations. We, we all stumble from the standards we hold others to. We criticize others for gossip by gossiping about them. We judge others for their judgmental attitude. We, we, we do the very things we accuse other people of doing. We know we aren't perfect. But we alleviate that by pointing at others. The reality is that the standard is the perfection of God. And, and oftentimes in our lives when we come face to face with our own brokenness and the consequences of it, that is when we finally go back to the Father and say, Father, I, I, I'm not near the person I want to believe I am. I need you. So there's a, there's a humility that has to come in acceptance. And again, we, because of the pride of the present era, we, we have no humility. We judge others because we fail to reflect on our own need and brokenness. So the, this, this elder son is a perfect picture of the Pharisees, but quite frankly, some days I'm the elder son. Some days I'm really good at criticizing other people. I, I, I can make a great list of all of your shortcomings because it's just, it's just in here. But thank God for the days that I'm a prodigal not the one that goes off and living in wild living, but the one who's come to the end of himself and realizes just how desperately I need grace. So I want to illustrate in the life of a most unlikely character, the person of David. And I, I'm, I've given you an outline in the notes, but I'm throwing it all over the place, so work with me here. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. This is one of the Apostle Paul's famous sermons. And I want you to notice the progression of the nation of Israel's history, which coincides with the progression of how we've illustrated the gospel. Standing up, Paul, verse 16, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. That would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. He, he chose that dynasty, and he made those people prosper. He sent them off to Egypt, and in Egypt they prospered through using Joseph and the blessings of Pharaoh for a time. And then with mighty power, he led them out of the country through Moses' leadership, whom we first read. And he endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert because of their disobedience. But he overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave the land to his people as their inheritance. That's the work of Joshua, whom God used to fulfill the promises that went all the way back to Abraham. And all this took about 450 years. And after this, God gave them judges. Remember the judges? After Joshua, the time whenever a person did what was right in their own heart, a time of disobedience and despair until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. But he thought it was about doing right, but he did right wrong. 
He obeyed, but his heart wasn't in it. So after removing Saul, he made David the king. And he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's a reference to the next passage I have listed in the notes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is incredibly significant in the story of the Old Testament because it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where God gives to David through the prophet what we call the Davidic covenant. In that promise, God comes to David and said, I am going, uh, David, if the story begins with David saying, Lord, I want to build you a temple. I've built myself a really nice house, but we're worshiping you in a tent. Doesn't seem right. So I want to build you a great temple up on the temple mount. And God says to David, no, you're a man of war. You have, you have spilled way too much blood. So we're going to give it to your son Solomon, whose name is, comes from the word peace, shalom. And he will build the temple. And if you know the story, David would assemble all the materials needed for the building of the temple, but Solomon would build it. But he also says to David, I, I, I won't treat your son Solomon like I did Saul. When he messes up, I'll discipline him, but I won't throw him out. Because someday there will be a descendant of his that will rule forever. And as you read the Old Testament, that, that descendant, that son of Jesse, that descendant of David, is the one born in the city of David, Jesus. That's why the fact that Jesus is called the son of David is so important, because he is the fulfillment of the Davidic promise of the one who would ultimately reign forever. And as God worked through his plan for the nation of Israel to meet their promises and bring them salvation, he would ultimately do it through a descendant of David, which, and the Old Testaments unite in that son, right? Because it's David's son, Jesus, who brings salvation through his death on the cross. But there's a problem with David. There's a horrible problem with David. Because if you read the story of the life of David, he, he is admirable. He was a great warrior. He was a babe magnet. Can I say that? Um, he, he was a musician. He was a poet. He was, he was a remarkable man. Everybody admired David. I mean, everything about him was great, except for his life became a bit of a train wreck. If you remember the story of the sin with Bathsheba, he sent his... His armies out to war, stayed back in the palace, saw a beautiful married woman from his roof and called her in and committed adultery with her. And when she turned up pregnant, he had her husband, in effect, murdered. And you think, ooh, he's the hero? That's the, is that the best you can do, God? That's not very admirable. And, and, and from, from that time on in the life of David, his, his life is a bit of a train wreck. The son from ba his original relationship with Bathsheba dies. Uh, Solomon does live, but Solomon's life doesn't end so well. And then there's the son Absalom who spends all of his effort in trying to kill his father and take over the crown. And David's life is just disappointing. You think, that doesn't seem right. 
but it's perfect. Because that's the point of the prodigal. The point of the prodigal is that we don't gain God's love by being good. The older son tried that. And the hero of the Old Testament story is someone who proves that beyond a shadow of the doubt. God doesn't say, I will give you a king who does everything right. He says, I'll give you a king who's after my heart. What does that mean? When David is confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba, what does he do? He falls on his face in repentance before God. Because we don't, we don't gain God's acceptance by virtue of our obedience. The older son did that, and he failed. We, we, we are closer to God as the prodigal. Not because he messes up so badly, but because when he messes up and experiences the discipline of God, the heartache of God, he knows that it's only God's mercy and grace. It's only God's mercy and grace that allows him for him to be accepted. All he can do is entrust himself to Jesus. And so it's through David, this horribly bad example that the sacrifice would come, that the son of David would secure our forgiveness by fulfilling all the Old Testament promises by being sacrificed like the Passover lamb. Because those who come to God don't come based on how good they are. They come based on God's mercy as demonstrated by and secured by Jesus' death on the cross. David's the perfect hero because he's not a hero. He's not a hero. He's, he's a broken man who has one thing that he's really good at, and that is realizing how desperately he needs God's grace and forgiveness. And the prodigal story is so incredibly significant because it, it not only tells the story of the nature of God as our Father and the way He loves and the way He forgives and the way He offers mercy, but it also is a beautiful demonstration that when we live like the elder son and, and proclaim how good we are and judge others and look down at others and, and, and compare ourselves to others so that we make ourselves feel better, all we're doing is chasing the wind. That gets us nothing because we're not what the elder son believes himself to be. Our, our elder son moments are our moments when we are furthest away from the gospel and the story of Jesus because in the story of Jesus, we learn we have nothing to offer God. He loves us. He gives us his affections because we are his children by his choice. He made us and we are his own. And we can experience forgiveness only when we recognize that we can't do it. We are not enough. Our goodness is dirty. Our purity is ugly. And that all we can do is, is embrace 
His mercy and grace that the New Testament and the Son of David demonstrates is through Jesus' death on the cross. And that's why the response is gratitude and worship and joy. And by the way, I think when we forget this, we also lose a heart for telling others about Jesus. Because I think when we don't care about telling others about Jesus, we we almost kind of get to thinking that somehow we deserve to be Christians and maybe they don't. Or Or they haven't earned it enough to be Christians or... In other words, the, 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 the message of the gospel and, and the incredible power that is in it, that this just mind-numbing mercy and grace stops being our focus and we start looking at all the other kinds of issues, whether they like us or not, and, whether to, and, and, and we lose sight of how powerful the prodigal story is that God loves us most, not when we're best, but when we respond to him. Empty-handed, broken, and aware of our sinfulness, and receiving his forgiveness. No longer having to defend ourselves, but instead just being loved. The prodigal son was loved. Lavishly loved, forgiven completely because of the Father's love. And that's our story. It's a simple story. Christian gospel is not complicated. On one level, there's all the theology and and all the reality behind that. But the, the essence of the gospel is simply the story of God having made people to live in relationship to him, and we have left him. But when we start down that road back through his son's death on the cross, he runs to meet us because he loves And we could run to greet others on that road as well. To tell them about the lavish love that we have received through him. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us that sometimes we become elder brothers. We compare ourselves, we look down, we justify, we defend. And all we have to do is receive. Receive your grace, your mercy and love through Jesus' death on the cross. And as we celebrate those things, remind us just how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.